0: Well, if you were here last week or tuning in, you know that we started into the Lord's Prayer. That was part one. We're going to dive into part two today. Um, Lord's Prayer is the most famous, really, prayer in the Bible, uh, probably. Uh, we, we looked at the version in Luke chapter 11, so you could turn there now if you want, uh, verses 1 to 4. Um, the Lord's Prayer, we said last week, is kind of like the building code for prayer, meaning it gives us the guidelines of how we are to pray uh, with the heart of God, uh, in line with what Scripture teaches, and in a way that will really draw us near to God, rather than just kind of uh, spouting off a prayer, reciting it kind of by rote. Uh, we also noted last week that there are two dimensions to this prayer. The first one, in verse 2, is the vertical dimension of prayer. It's all about God. Um, here it is, the, the first bit. We looked at this last week. Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. A very short, very concise, but, but really a, a reminder of the focus that we should have in our lives, and in fact, uh, of the entire universe, uh, about God himself as our Father and as our our King. But because God is a good Father, uh, because he's a generous King, in this next section we see that Jesus invites us to bring our requests to him. uh, That we can ask him for our daily needs and and we can uh, anticipate and expect his response. So that's, that's really what this next section is about. Not the vertical dimension, just focused on God. It's still about God, but now it's how God helps us. So that's what we're going to look at today, verses 3 and 4. Uh, let's begin just by reading it. Uh, the prayer continues in this way. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. So once again, uh, I'm going to break this down kind of into three sections, just looking at each uh, verse, little uh, phrase in turn. And the first one is this, give us each day our daily bread. Now, there's some disagreement, uh, you should know, about how this is translated. uh, Because uh, in the Greek, the the expression daily bread really means bread for tomorrow. So some translators want to translate this, uh, Lord, our bread for tomorrow, give us today which is a little convoluted. It's kind of probably why they don't translate it that way. Uh, but it does kind of help us to grasp the idea that's being presented here, which is that God provides for our daily needs. There's, there's bread, there's stuff that he's going to give us tomorrow. He knows that. We kind of want uh, to have the security of it today. Uh, it reminds me of a Of a story I heard about an orphanage uh, in England, kind of in the early uh, 20th century. And this was an orphanage that that brought a lot of kids in off the street. And the orphanage director noticed that the kids who were just in off the street, I mean, they were in rough shape, they hadn't had a lot of food, they were, you know, uh, in a difficult situation. But even after they started getting regular uh, meals and care, they still had a lot of trouble getting to sleep each night. And so he had the idea, uh, when he put them to bed he would give them a piece of bread. And he would would say to them, this is your bread for tomorrow. Hold on tight, and in the morning you can eat it. And he found that they they slept a lot more peacefully, which makes sense. They were used to worrying about whether they would even eat the next day. Now they had a a tangible assurance that they would be fed. And that's kind of the idea behind this phrase. When we're praying, give us each day our, our daily bread, it gives us something to hold on to. Reminds us that that God indeed does provide for our daily needs. So really, the first part of this section of the prayer is is a comfort. It's it's meant in part to be a comfort to us, to remind us that God does take care of us, to assure ourselves, to comfort us that He has before, He will in the future. Which is helpful uh, because I think if we're honest, we know that a lot of us spend a lot of time worrying about tomorrow. Uh, It's not It's not the case that in every evening of our lives we go to bed peacefully. A lot of the times we are laying awake. We're trying to piece together all the events of the next day and try to make sure that we we get it all straight in our mind. We're worrying about things that are far beyond our control and yet we seem to think if we keep thinking about them over and over again that somehow that's going to help. When in fact what really happens is we become more and more anxious. It's not ultimately helpful to, to go over in our minds those things we can't control. It's good to plan but really what we need is the conviction that God will care for us, that he will provide for us. In that way, we can rest. We can rest peacefully knowing that he will provide for our our physical needs, the the bread itself, and our spiritual needs. But there's another way that this beginning part is helpful. Um, Praying this idea regularly, like just asking God for our daily, um, Lord, take care of us tomorrow, keep us healthy tomorrow, whatever it may be, uh, it helps to guard our hearts against uh, the lie of self-sufficiency. I mean, if if you know anything about yourself, if we know ourselves as human beings, we know that self-sufficiency is something that we 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 slip into very very easily. Um, it's easy for us to forget, right? How dependent we are on God for the daily needs of our lives. I mean, for bread itself, um, especially when we're when things are going well, when we're healthy, when we're young. Um, I remember talking to a guy who, who built homes, and he was telling me about his early days uh, when he was starting a family, starting out in the business, and he said he, he felt like he had so much energy. He would, he would go to the work site and work for 10 hours a day, and then he'd have dinner, and he'd go home. They'd bought a piece of land out in the valley, and he would build his own house for the next five hours. He'd put a headlamp on. He said, I just felt like I was invincible. I would just keep going and going, and then I'd drop to bed and get up and do it again and again. And there are some seasons of our life. Some of you uh, haven't felt like that in a while, but you know... There's some of us who just feel like, yeah, I'm going to get up each day. I got lots of energy. If we're Christians, in of course we know that God is taking care of us, but practically speaking, we really are running on our own steam. Which is dangerous. Uh not just because at some point we are going to run out of steam, uh, but because we can build in our own minds and hearts um a sense of self-sufficiency that that really we don't really need God. That every day we seem to take care of things on our own and everything is is great, but in a in fact, what's going to happen is that, that that will draw us away from God. It will draw us to a place where we're really trusting in ourselves, and it will set us up for huge uh, failure and just disaster when there are difficult times that come, because we won't be used to exercising our faith. We'll just be going on our own, and then when something happens that we can't control, when we get hurt, when we, something happens, we'll, we'll fall apart. So the truth, the truth is that we are not self-sufficient. At all. We're, we're dependent on God for everything. And we need to make sure we remember that. But of, of course, it's difficult. Um, this week, or last week, uh, I was in the church building here looking for a quiet place to work. And uh, David was away. David always gets, for some reason, the back corner office uh, where it's nice and cool. So, Uh, I knew he was away, so I went in there, and I sat at his sort of makeshift desk, trying not to touch anything because I have to sanitize everything when I'm done. But I sat down, and I looked up, and I noticed just below the window, he had kind of a a note card, a handwritten note. And the note uh, just said this, What do I have that I have not received? And I thought, that's that's a great thing to sit down to every day as you're beginning your work. What do I have that I have not received? I mean, that, that really captures that the humility and the gratitude that's present in the beginning part of this prayer. And if you're wondering whether David is just so wise and eloquent to come up with those words on his own, he's not. Um, It's from the Bible. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4.7, Paul says uh, to the Corinthian church, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So he's pushing into them, saying, why are you living your lives giving the sense that you?" You're responsible for all of it. Think about everything that you've received. Don't boast. Don't live in a way that seems to make much of yourself. Give glory to God. Give thankfulness to God. That's a great question for us to ask. What do we have? What do you have that you have not received from God? No matter how accomplished you are, no matter um, how well your life is going, everything, if you get back to the kind of the root of it, is, is a gift of God. Your physical life, your spiritual life, where we live, the skill sets you've been given. It's a great thing in prayer to simply acknowledge that. And we do it by asking God, God, would you continue to provide? Implicit there is the idea, Lord, I I know you've been providing, that I haven't been doing this on my own. Lord, I pray tomorrow, please, continue to provide for me. I need you. It's a humbling prayer, one that reveals our dependence. So that's the first thing. That's the first part of this section. Uh, The second part goes this way. Simply, and forgive us our sins. And forgive us our sins. Now, uh, forgiveness of sins is is a key issue in the Christian faith. It's a key issue for reconciling um, humanity to God. Uh, In fact, a good way to think about our relationship with God is like that of a uh, a married couple. Uh, It's very similar. Uh, If you think about a married couple in the beginning, uh, it's it's great. Uh, Not that it's not great later. I'm just saying in the beginning... Uh, there's a level of intimacy, there's, there's, I mean, there's a party, right? There's a wedding, there's a honeymoon, there's a high level of relational intimacy, there's a lot of joy and newness, and that very much is what it was like in the Garden of Eden, right? There's a high level of relational intimacy between Adam and Eve and God, everything was new, everything was perfect, it was wonderful, and yet we know in marriage that that, that doesn't continue. No matter how great your marriage is, there are always uh, hurts, that husbands and wives uh, do to each other, commit against each other, some big, some small. If it's a a big betrayal, that relationship is going to be damaged and perhaps broken. There can very easily be uh, a time where husbands and wives maybe are living in the same house and yet really, relationally, they're very far apart. And that's exactly how it was with humanity and God. Except that our relationship was completely broken by sin. As Adam and Eve turned their backs on God, disobeyed, fell into sin by their own will, um, we were separated from God. In this case, physically, they were kicked out of the garden, but relationally. Now, instead of um, humanity being under the hand of blessing, of God's blessing, now we are under the hand of God's anger and judgment. And, and the the real problem is that human beings didn't just like disappoint God or hurt his feelings, we broke his law. So there is a debt of injustice that needed to be paid. We, we were like, Someone who's bankrupt. We've got this huge fine that needs to be paid. There's no way to pay it. To be reconciled, things need to be made right, but in of ourselves, we we couldn't do it because sin is part of who we are. And that is the wonder of the cross. That's the whole hope of Christianity. That there was someone, God Himself, Jesus the Son of God, who came and paid that debt. He took all the consequences of sin upon himself, all the anger, all the wrath. He himself was separated from God. That's why he said, God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? And in that, uh, the opportunity was given for humanity to be reconciled, to be forgiven. We see it stated this way in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20 and 21. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the offer of the gospel. We, we admit our sin, we confess it, and we are made righteous because of the faithfulness of Jesus and because of his atoning sacrifice. So I say all of that because those are the underlying truths that make this prayer possible. We can pray, God, forgive us our sins because in Christ we know they are forgiven. That's, that's the basis. That's the truth. That's the work that's been done so that we can appeal to God that our sins will be forgiven. The question, though, a couple questions you need to ask, practically speaking, is, When Jesus tells us to pray this way, is he saying that we need to confess every single sin so that we know it's forgiven? Because there are some strains of Christianity which would say, look, you don't really have assurance that your sin is forgiven until you have confessed it. That's why there's confession. You come to a priest, you confess, and that's that's then when you know you're forgiven. That's when you have peace. But up until that point, you're you're not sure. Is Is that why Jesus is telling us this? That we need to have a regular rhythm of making sure, thinking of everything wrong that we've done the day before, confessing it, (sighs) now we're okay and we move on and we come back again. Is, Is that what he's saying? Well, the answer is no. No, because the sacrifice of Christ was a final sacrifice. On the cross, Jesus said, it's finished. Right, All the work has been done for you to be reconciled with God. In Hebrews 10, it tells us that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God, that his work was done. So forgiveness is a done deal. In Christ, all of our sins, the ones we can think of, the ones we can't think of, it's all done by his atoning sacrifice which gives us great assurance and great hopefulness, great peace. But it still maybe leaves us wondering, well then why are we why is this part in the prayer? If forgiveness is done, if I believe Jesus you died for all my sins, it's done once and for all. Why is why are we still praying, God forgive us our sins? I'm going to give you three practical reasons why this is helpful. It's not ultimately for the saving of our sins. That's been done. That's been done by the work of God, applied to us by the Spirit of God. But practically speaking, when we pray this way, it keeps us humble. It's a humbling thing to be in prayer and to every morning examine our hearts and say, Lord, I, I know there's sin. Let me, I'm going to confess it to you. Not because I, I, I'm worried about my salvation, but because I want to bring that sin to light. It keeps us from getting too puffed up and thinking that we don't have any area to work on in our lives. It also protects us from greater sin. It's difficult, more difficult, to get tempted into, into more and more sin when we have a regular rhythm of, of bringing our sin to light, confessing it. It helps us to keep from being blinded by those areas of temptation. We're going to talk about that more in a minute because the the prayer ends with that. The third thing, third practical reason why this is helpful is that when we pray regularly, um, God, forgive me of my sins, it helps me then to forgive others, which is what we see in the prayer, right? In verse uh, three there, look at the last part. So, and forgive us our sins for, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. See the word debt there, that idea of, of a debt of sin. Uh, the other word that's important there is for, because it shows a connection between the uh, forgiveness that we desire from God and the forgiveness that we show others. Now sometimes in verses like this, uh, there's a bit of a confusion, right? Because we sometimes get the impression, okay, so I'm, I'm earning then the forgiveness of God. Is that what's being said here? That if I forgive others, then God will forgive me and it's, uh, it's my works that it's based on. And again, the answer is no. Uh, no, it's very clear from the Bible that, that it's Jesus who does the ultimate saving work and that we then do good things in light of what he's already done for us. That, that's the point. That someone who is forgiving in their lives is showing that they have already been forgiven by Christ. That's the connection that's there. But I think we know that even when we've experienced the forgiveness of Christ, actually forgiving people is, is really hard. I mean, it's, it's got to be one of the hardest things. To forgive someone who hurts you or betrays you, especially if uh, they're close to you, incredibly difficult. I came across this, um, this folk tale. Uh, Robert Louis Stevenson ta- tells of this, uh, this Scottish folktale that he came across about these two spinster sisters. Uh, they lived together in this little cottage in Scotland, and at some point they had a falling out, which maybe is not hard to believe if you have sisters. Um... But at some point, there was was a transgression, and there was hurt, uh, but they didn't have a lot of money, so they they decided to stay in the same cottage, and they did the classic thing. uh, Maybe they're the ones who invented it, where they took chalk, and they put a line down the middle of the cottage, and uh, they continued to live in the cottage, even though they they hated each other. Listen to how uh, Stevenson describes it. He says this, So for years, they coexisted in a hateful silence. Their meals, their friendly visitors exposed to an unfriendly scrutiny. And at night, in the dark watches, each could hear the breathing of her enemy. Never did four walls look down upon an uglier spectacle than these sisters rivaling in unsisterliness. That last line is my favorite sisters rivaling in unsisterliness. Sadly, I think this is all too familiar. There are people that we can hold grudges with, that we can live in the same home with, the same office place with. We see them every day, we interact with them, and yet there's this hardness of heart. Even for those of us who know the forgiveness of Jesus, it's, it's possible for us to harden our heart to the point where we will not be soft-hearted towards someone who has wronged us in a significant way. And this prayer, this appeal, God, forgive us our, our sins as we forgive others, this serves as a warning. Because an unforgiving heart is one of the most dangerous things for a human being. In fact, uh, Charles uh, Spurgeon, he says this uh, about this prayer. Just listen. He says, unless you have forgiven others, you read your own death warrant when you repeat the Lord's prayer. He has a a way with words. He's very (laughs) stark. But really what he's saying here is, look, there is something seriously wrong with someone who is is saying, look, I'm forgiven. All my sins are forgiven. Praise God. but, But this person, I'm not forgiving them. Can't do it. They've hurt me too bad. What he's saying is if if you can say that, if that's how you're living, then you don't understand the gospel. It's very hard to believe that you have a real faith in the gospel if that's what's going on in your life. Because if you did understand the depth of your own sin, it would it would soften your heart towards the sin of others. So the real then question for us uh, is, is how can we be more forgiving? How can we be more forgiving? Well, a couple things, practically. Because that's what this prayer is leading us to, hopefully. But but we know it's hard. So a couple things to remember. Number one, we should remember that the debt of sin is not owed to us. We should remember that. The debt of sin, ultimately, is not owed to us. Sin is primarily against God. No matter how wrong you feel when someone sins against you, uh, the real debt is, is not is not to you. And we know this because uh, in Psalm 51, when King David is, you know, confessing his sin, he committed adultery, committed murder. When he's praying to God about this, listen to what he says. He says, "God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight." It's not that he didn't sin against Bathsheba or her husband, he did, but he knows ultimately the real debt here is against God. He's the one he needs to be reconciled with first and foremost. So the reason this is helpful in terms of our forgiveness is that we can know, look, if there's someone who's hurt us, if they're a Christian, then that debt has been paid. That that account has been wiped clean by Jesus. And if he's wiped it clean, who are we to try to put it back on them again? And secondly, if, if they are not a Christian, then they will be held to account on the Day of Judgment. See, sometimes we have trouble with forgiveness because we think look, if, if we just let this go, then it will, who's gonna deal with it? They'll just get off scot free. But the Bible makes very clear in God's universe, no, no one gets off scot free. Either sin is atoned for by Jesus, he paid the penalty, or or each individual person will. We, we can have peace knowing that God is sovereign, knowing that he is gracious. So that's the first thing. The debt of sin, it's not, it's not owed to us. Secondly, in terms of being more forgiving, um, we, need to, we need to better appreciate that there is greater freedom in forgiveness than in bitterness. Um, we tend to think that when we withhold forgiveness, like when we you know, hold on to things, carry that grudge, that we're really punishing the other person, and that's what we want. right? They hurt us, we want to hurt them back. So man, if we, just, if we give them the silent treatment forever, they're really going to feel it, we we miss, we totally miss the toll that it takes on us. That bitterness, it wreaks havoc in our own life. It draws us deeper and deeper into a dark pit of of hatred for someone else. And the longer we're bitter, the longer we feel we need to be bitter because we've been bitter for so long, we can't just let it go. It totally consumes our life. It's unbiblical and it's bad economics, okay? Hear me out on this, okay? Okay? I know, I listened to a podcast, so we're in trouble. But listen, it's bad economics. Here's the thing. Economists have an idea of something called sunk costs. Sunk costs are uh, the cost that you put into something, and you just know you're never going to get it back. Okay, so economists say, look, sunk costs are in the past. Don't let sunk costs influence your decisions for the future. So for example, if you go to a movie, remember we used to go to movies, and when we did, we would pay a lot of money, To go to a movie, and sometimes, partway through the movie, we would realize this is not a great movie. I mean, this is is a bad movie. I don't really even want to stay for the rest of this movie. It's another hour, but then we think to ourselves, well, I paid for the ticket, so I probably should stay because I paid for the ticket. And economists would say, no, that's the wrong way to think. You're you're looking back into the past. That money is gone, okay? Not very many theater managers are going to give you that money back. That money is gone. You shouldn't be thinking about it. What you should be thinking of is, look, I've got an hour ahead of me. What would be the best use of my time? What would bring me greater joy? Sounds like it would be better to go for coffee with the person you're with than watching the rest of this horrible movie. There's freedom in good economics. It helps you to look to the future rather than the past. If you think about those sisters, what are they doing? At first they were angry because of whatever happened between them, but at a certain point they were just angry because they have been angry for so long. And they can't give it up. They'd look foolish. And economists would say, no, it's more foolish To look to the past. Instead, look look to the future. See what options are available for you to get greater joy in your life. Bitterness is always about the past. Forgiveness takes us into the future because we know the things that are true about sin. It's forgiven in Christ, God is dealing with it, we don't have to worry about it. And when we can actually leave it behind, we can walk forward in a way that's much better, much more free, much more enjoyable. So let me ask you, which of these two is determining your life right now in terms of relationships with others? Are there situations where you are allowing bitterness to tether you to the past? Would it not be so much better for you to swallow your pride or whatever it is that God's going on and to be able to forgive and forget and move forward with greater joy, with greater freedom, confident that God will deal with all sin. We don't have to be the ones to exact punishment. So when we pray this prayer, this part of the prayer, it really is going to push us. I hope for us that we're taking this seriously and we're thinking about the way we relate to each other and and whether, in fact, we've experienced the forgiveness of, of God and how that relates to others. This prayer, remember, is meant to shape our hearts as much as is meant for us to request things from God. It's both at the same time. Okay, the last, uh, the last bit, part number three. And lead us not into temptation. So we have to start with a point of clarification right off the bat, and, and that is this. Uh, God does not tempt us to sin. I know it just seems like it, but look, here's another verse that makes it more clear. James 1.13 Um let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So to be tempted, uh, to be tempted means to be lured into sin. Right? That's the whole point. That, that we're being kind of lured in, enticed into greater and greater sin, going against God, um, what God says is best. God never does that in our lives. He never intends for us to step into evil. He's never behind the temptation in our lives. So then we might be wondering, well, then why are we we praying to God about our temptation if, in fact, he's not the one who who originates it? And the answer is that while he doesn't originate temptation, he can protect us from it. That's what this part of the prayer is all about. Uh, God, please protect me from uh, those who want to tempt me into sin, namely the enemy of our souls, Satan himself, and, in fact, our own sin. This is really what we're asking. God, please keep me from being tempted. God, please help me to turn away from sin. Um, For us to pray this prayer with integrity, what we need, though, we need a sober understanding of sin. We, We need to have clear in our minds the danger of sin. If we're really praying, God, keep me from temptation, what we're saying is, Lord, I know that's a dangerous thing. I don't want to go anywhere near that. But I don't know if we always have that view of sin, frankly. If we're honest, I think there are times uh, when we enjoy temptation. When even though we think we have no intention of of going further into sin, the temptation itself is is enticing and we welcome it. I remember a time when a friend of mine was asking me, uh, we were going to pray for each other and he said, look, I need you to help me. um, I want you to pray for my struggle with lust. And I said, well, is there... You know, have you given in to, to lust in some way? Is, is that what we need to be praying about? He said, no. He said, I haven't, I haven't given in to it. He said, but I feel like a soldier in battle. And I feel like every day there's these arrows being flung at me, and I have a shield, and I'm, I'm deflecting them all the time. He said, but I'm realizing that I'm kind of fascinated by the arrows themselves. I said, well, what do, what do you mean? He said, well, like when I'm online. He said, there's, there's images that come up, and I, I never click on them, but I'm starting to linger over them. Or when I'm scrolling, I'm, st- I'm starting to linger. And he said, I'm worried that that, even though it's not sin, it's just a temptation, but I'm kind of, I'm okay with it in a sense. I'm worried it's going to lead me into sin. And he was right to be worried. It's only a matter of time when we engage in temptation that we are going to fall into sin. I mean, someone who's fascinated by arrows eventually is going to find one in their chest, right? We're going to be looking at the arrow too long. We're going to, we're going to, not deflected in the way that we should. This part of the prayer, in praying, God, keep us from temptation, really, it's it's a part that pushes us to evaluate our own mind and our heart and to ask ourselves, look, are are we allowing ourselves to be fascinated by things that are going to destroy us? Like, are we okay with certain things, in a sense? I mean, we aren't giving in at this moment, but but we're fascinated by something that's deadly. I mean, lust is an obvious one, but there's all sorts of other things, right? Think of online shopping. That's probably what we're doing more and more of these days. And so what do we do? We're we're, we're scrolling, looking at things that we're interested in, things that we know we can't afford. And we say to ourselves, well, I'm just keeping up with the latest tech. I just need to find out, you know, the specs on a 6K TV because who knows, I may in the future want to buy one. I just need to keep up with the latest fashion, right? So we're we're kind of engaging in a a sense of temptation. We're not going to buy it. We can't afford it. But what happens, amazingly, is sometimes those things end up in our cart. And then sometimes they end up as debt on our credit card. And it's amazing how quickly that that happens. It happens because we're, we're, we're stepping into a realm that we know is dangerous, and yet we're not clear on the danger. That's temptation. That's what we need God to help guard us and to, to look soberly at what we're doing. Because greed and lust and envy and every other sin, it's, it's dangerous, it's deadly. Because essentially what it does is it implants a lie. And the lie is, is simply, look, God, you're not enough for me. That's the lie. The lie is, whatever you've given me is not enough. Even things I can't afford, even though those things you said I shouldn't look at or shouldn't have, um, I think I need those things now to be satisfied with my life. So here's the other thing we're praying for when we pray about God not um, keeping us from temptation. We're praying that God would protect us from ourselves. We're saying, Lord, I I don't I don't help me not to trust myself. Lord, please protect me from the temptation that I'm. I'm allowing to be in my life. Lord, would you help me to think seriously and soberly about sin? Would you help me to take the steps necessary so that I'm not trusting in my own ability to say no? Lord, help me. Protect me from myself. But look, maybe you're in a position where, you know, you've crossed the threshold of temptation long ago. Right? There's times in our lives where it's not that we're worried about temptation possibly overtaking us. Really, if we're honest, we're saying, man, I don't even know my way back. Like like I'm so mired in sin, I'm so caught up in it um, that I'm not sure what to do. We can still pray this prayer. We can still, still pray about protection from temptation because if we know the Lord, every sin, no matter how regular, no matter how... how uh, serious it is, has been forgiven in Christ. And there is always a way of escape in the Lord. Uh, If you're struggling in this way, this is a verse you need to memorize. 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So what does that mean? What it means is that wherever you are, whatever uh, challenge of mind or heart, whatever temptation you're in, there is always the power you have to escape it through the gospel. Because if you're worried about the guilt of past sin, the answer is Christ has paid for that. It's not on you anymore. And if you're worried about the potential sin to come in the future, the answer is Jesus is with you. He sent his spirit He himself has endured all temptation. He's going to give you the power. So you confess, you step away, not dragging guilt behind you, but in freedom, every day expecting that God will be with you and help you. There is always a way out of the darkness of sin, even though the temptation seems overwhelming. That's that's the power of the gospel. That in the gospel, we have hope in every situation of life, whether it's sin that's been done to us, sin that we're committing. We can experience the freedom that comes from knowing Christ because he really is the answer. He is the escape when it comes to the temptation of sin. And what we see here in this last part of the prayer is really um, really a key truth for the whole prayer itself, which is that all of the prayer, not just this last part, but the whole thing leads us to Jesus. I mean, it's called the Lord's Prayer because Jesus, our Lord, gave it to the disciples. But you could also say it's the Lord's Prayer because as we pray it, it leads us to Jesus, our Lord, every time, over and over and over again. I mean, just let me read through a bit of the prayer and you can see what I mean. Father, hallowed be your name. Meaning, God, I want to glorify you. Jesus is the glory of God. As we know him, we are better able to glorify him in every area of our life. When we pray your kingdom come, we should be reminded, look, Jesus established the kingdom with his coming. And he will turn one day and he will consummate the kingdom, bring it to fruition. The kingdom is all about Jesus. When we know him, we can pray this and and draw near to the kingdom. Give us each day our daily bread. We've seen already Jesus provides for us. In fact, he says in John 6, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. When we're looking for a provision, we need to look no further than Jesus himself. And of course, the forgiveness of sins is all about what Christ has done for us on the cross. We've already said the temptation that we experience in sin. Jesus was the perfect example of the one who resisted temptation. He's also the one who promises to be with us, praying for us at the right hand of God. See, rightly understood, the Lord's prayer is a gospel prayer that finds its answer fully in Jesus, which is why we should be praying in the pattern of this prayer. I'm not sure about you, but over the last couple weeks, um, I've found my prayer life influenced just by studying this more and more. It's just come to my mind, right? I've started praying, thinking of Father when I begin, and just being like, Yeah, I need Lord, thank you that you're my Father. Thank you that I'm in your family. That the themes of the Lord's Prayer just seep into my prayer life in such a, a satisfying and helpful way. There's a reason why this is the most famous and I think most helpful prayer in the Bible. There's a reason why Jesus gave this answer. He's saying, This is short. You can memorize it, please do. But also live it and allow the themes to to transform you because they're gospel themes. In it we find the hope of Christ for every area of our life. So the question again, I think we started with this question, is are are we praying this? Are we praying at all, And are we praying this way? Like I said last week, it's always a good day to start talking to God. It's always a great time to be on your knees, to be in prayer, either confessing sin, asking for help from God, or simply glorifying Him for who He is. So I'm going to end by uh, saying the Lord's Prayer. And uh, if you want to say it with me, uh, that would be cool. It begins this way. Father, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Let me close in prayer. God, we are thankful. Thankful for how you have helped us. Lord, even help us to know how we should speak to you. How we should pray. How we should appeal to you. And in that prayer, there's everything that we need for hope in our life. What a gift. Jesus, I pray for each one here. Each one tuning in online, in zone two, wherever they are, Lord. Would you help us to draw nearer to you through this kind of gospel prayer? that these themes would encourage us and transform us and convict us. Lord, if there is sin, may we not think of it lightly. May we take it seriously. May we confess it. May we bring it into the light. And may we walk forward in faithfulness, Jesus, because you've been faithful for us. I thank you so much for this time together. I thank you for your word. Please encourage us in your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.